Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, an update on that horrific military helicopter crash off the coast of Greece. Quebec and Ontario have very different plans for opening up the provinces. Is Quebec taking too much of a chance? And the U.S. president is accusing China of trying to derail his next election campaign. Coming up on the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. Boy, you know, your heart breaks for not only all Canadians and everybody going through all of this, but uh, particularly those in Nova Scotia, uh, considering what they went through uh, last week uh, with uh, the shooting there and then the first victim identified being from Nova Scotia as well. Just uh, you wonder, my goodness. Um, and uh, and uh, just uh, some incredible images of the victim uh, celebrating those in Nova Scotia uh, and and commemorating them uh, by playing the bagpipes uh, on the deck of uh, of the ship just uh, just days ago. Unbelievable when you think of uh, how this has all transpired for the people of Nova Scotia as we all deal with with COVID nineteen. Just adding to this. Uh, the Prime Minister spoke this morning, and obviously uh, the focus was, uh, as opposed to being on COVID-19, was on this, uh, the crash of the Canadian military helicopter. Here's what he had to say this morning. Yesterday, a Royal Canadian Navy helicopter on a NATO mission, carrying six members of the Canadian Armed Forces, went down with all hands in the Ionian Sea off the coast of Greece. They were flying from the Canadian naval frigate HC, HMCS Fredericton, home port of Halifax, as part of Operation Reassurance. One casualty was recovered, and five are missing. And here's what Defence Minister Harjit Sajan had to say. Yesterday we lost contact with a CH-148 Cyclone helicopter deployed on board HMCS Fredericton. The helicopter was involved in an accident while it was participating in NATO allied exercises as part of Operation Reassurance off the coast of Greece in the Ionian Sea. Since yesterday, I've had a number of conversations with the Secretary General of NATO. We remain in contact with Italy, Greece, the United States and Turkey who are assisting us in the search and rescue efforts to help us find the Canadian Armed Forces members who are on the helicopter. Through the night, and day, ships, aircraft, and helicopters were engaged in search and rescue efforts. I want to thank all our allies for their support on this. As of this morning, this is what we currently know. The cause of this accident is unknown at this time. We can confirm the death of one member of the Royal Canadian Navy. Search efforts are still ongoing for the remaining five missing members. We have recovered the flight data and voice recorders from the helicopter. A Canadian Armed Forces flight safety team is departing today to begin their work to find answers for the families and loved ones. All right, that is Defence Minister Harjit Sajan talking about uh, the loss of that military helicopter uh, off of Greece and the uh, first victim being identified. To talk more about it, all of this, let's bring in Ross Lord, Atlantic correspondent with Global News. He is with us now. Ross, thanks for the time, and my goodness, another sad day for those in Nova Scotia. Hey, Scott, it's good to be here, though. Uh, the Chief of Defence Staff, Jonathan Vance, confirms Sub-Lieutenant Abigail Cobra did not survive the crash the search continues for the other five occupants. 
Defense Minister Harjit Sajjan calls the crash an accident, says the cause is unknown. Um, they are saying that the cockpit voice recorder and the flight data recorder from the cyclone have been recovered. Uh, Chief of Defense Staff Vance says they'll try to get back to business, but for now there's a fleet-wide operational pause uh, so that they need to rule out there's not a fleet-wide uh, problem before they, they fly these helicopters again. He says he doesn't think there is a larger problem, but taking precautions as they search for the other five occupants and investigate what happened. Ross, what more do we know about uh, those on the helicopter? Uh, Is there some confusion as who was supposed to be on it and who wasn't? No, but there are questions about how many of those six occupants are regular crew and if there are one or two others who were not regular crew because... um, Abigail Cobra, for instance, was a Navy sub-lieutenant. Um, if she was part of the crew, she would have been an Air Force uh, uh, member, an Air Force rank. So, um, you know, what we're told by our pilot sources is that the regular crew number for that helicopter would be four. Um, and if there were additional ones, then there may be um, other things going on, like maybe they were there for some training or maybe they were there for a transfer to another ship. Um, but the uh, you know the uh, defense minister and the chief of defense staff are not talking about that at this point, other than to say that she did have authorization to be on that flight. So it, it doesn't seem to be a question of whether uh, folks were allowed to be on there. It's just, I guess, a matter of delineating the Air Force crew from possibly the two others who were there. Ross, obviously, I know you have to go here, uh, but another sad day for Nova Scotia. Yeah, for sure. We we look at each other and shake our heads and cannot believe what's happening. Um, but it is happening, and, you know, the same as you're doing and everyone else. We're just going to keep doing our job, and, uh, you know, this too shall pass at some point. Our condolences and thoughts with uh, all of those uh, in the Maritimes that are suffering again today. Ross Lord with his Atlantic correspondent, Global News. Ross, we thank you so much for the time. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, Many have uh, compared Ontario to uh, Quebec and not only their different strategies, but also uh, the the different uh, fatality rates in the two provinces. Quebec, obviously, uh, quite a bit more than Ontario does, specifically through uh, uh, old folks' homes and and long-term care and such. And the Quebec Premier has announced uh, dates to already... uh, you know, move things forward and get going. Uh, the Ontario Premier uh, hesitant to do that. Let's bring in Peter Griff, pl- uh, Professor of Political Science, McMaster University. He is with us now. Thanks for the time, Peter. Much appreciated. Afternoon. So, Peter, why do you think the different uh, different methods of, of reopening between Quebec and Ontario, considering they're both populated provinces and considering uh, they stu- still do have some issues, especially with Quebec? Yeah, I mean, that one to me is a bit of a head-scratcher. Uh, if anything, we would have expected it to go the other way, given uh, the extent of at least recognized uh, spread in the in the two different provinces. Uh, also, Ontario now is testing at about twice the rate of Quebec. Uh, well, uh, twice the number, so I mean, this is still more in a kind of population share. So, yeah, it, it's kind of hard to understand what ex- what exactly is pushing in Quebec, although, you know, clearly... Uh, as with most places, we're beginning to see uh, 
people getting antsy, uh, becoming increasingly worried about the economic impact as uh, people's, uh, you know, not being at work or having to pay uh, rent without having income coming in, and small businesses in particular facing that, uh, you know, moves into another month. Uh, how does one politician deal with another politician who doesn't see eye to eye on something like this? Uh, Premier Ford made a point of saying, you know, he gets along with them and such, but just does not agree at this point. That, those, those are two pretty stark statements, two pretty different statements. Uh, yeah, but I mean, I think in this case, uh, I mean, as we were speaking last time, for most of these politicians, it's a bit of a gamble. We don't know enough about uh, COVID and its spread and uh, how it will spread under different you know, degrees of uh, lockdown or social distancing or relaxation of that to really be able to make very strong bets and so, uh, or to, to really know what's likely to happen. So, yeah, I mean, some, some people take a, a step into the unknown. And uh, if you're uh, more uh, cautious in your strategy, as uh, Ford seems to be in this case, Premier Ford, then I guess your concern is um, that, you know, you'll have spillover as other places open up. They'll see, well, why do we, you know, have to keep Ontario locked down? So, I mean, I think part of his response then was to make it very clear that regardless of what other places do, uh, you know, they, they should keep to themselves and, and not come and cause problems in Ontario. And in that, I think he's in a probably a pretty strong place because, I mean, the Quebec government has been on the bridges between Ottawa and Gatineau uh, for over a month in terms of limiting uh, the movement of Ontarians into Quebec if they don't have really strong reasons to do that. So if Ontario has to, you know, do the same back uh, as Quebec begins to lift some of its restrictions, uh, again, I think, you know, there won't be, it won't seem like something that's strange or out of place. And indeed, even the Quebec government has been fairly, you know, they're, they're opening up some of the barriers between the different regions of the province, but Gatineau remains pretty well closed off, at least for the, the, the near future. So what happens now? Wait and see. Um, is there any threat to being overcautious? Um. Uh, I mean, I think, other than the economic, I guess. Yeah, and again, the, the you know the question is is you know how big of, of a cost is that even because even places that are opening up are opening up very slowly, so I think there's benefit a bit in seeing what's happening. I mean, we saw uh, Germany opened, and now we're a bit worried that they've opened a bit too quickly. Uh, you know, so we can learn a bit on in, in terms of what the pacing is and what worked at what didn't work in those cases. So I think in most cases, uh, you know, being the absolute last is maybe not the best place to be, uh, but. Having a chance to learn from uh, what other places are doing is probably a safer bet, uh, you know, to the extent that they're going well. You can accelerate in catching up to them pretty quickly, but to the extent that they have problems, you can learn from them before you have them yourself. Uh, many complaining that, that Premier Ford isn't giving any dates uh, as to when these stages will start. He has laid out what the stages will look like and then today uh, announced guidelines for businesses when they do reopen. How important is it to have those guidelines and such in place before you actually reopen? Well, I mean, I think it's useful because, uh, again, uh, there's thousands of workplaces across this province and uh, you know, in many cases, if there hasn't been a real push uh, of public education about what's meant to happen, what changes have to occur in those workplaces, uh, you know, how will how will people working there be safe? How do you deal with the public? Uh, if you don't take the time to, to teach people, yeah, you open up and suddenly you find that there's all kinds of problems all over the place in terms of respecting those guidelines. So, uh, again, uh, I suspect the strategy in the Ontario government's approach is to not be, give firm dates at this point. Uh, simply for the educational purpose, because we're all chomping at the bit, and if they gave us a date, I think we'd already start making plans. <laughs> so I think, yeah. and, and then be disappointed. Yeah, 
So a public and then be disappointed. Pers- Sorry, go ahead. Well, from a public communications perspective, I think it's just to get people ready to the idea that we're not going back to how it was before. What we're going to go is towards something just slightly more open than we're living at the moment. Uh, how much more difficult will the reopening be to the shuttering of all of this? I mean, many have said that the, 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 the trip down the curve will be a lot more difficult than the trip up. Uh, well, I think that the, I think it will be very difficult. Uh, again, because, you know, while some economic activities and some social activities will start, not all of them will, uh, people's capacity to participate in the way that they did before uh, through, you know, purchasing things uh, will be much diminished uh, because of the economic uncertainties around it. I mean, I I think it will be a prolonged period, uh, you know, where as much as we've seen these, uh, you know, mobilizations to reopen the economy, uh, even when you reduce some of the uh, social distancing, even if you reduce some of the uh, prevention of of firms from opening, uh, you know, the, the people won't necessarily be there. I'm not sure that we're all running out to go to restaurants for <laughs> the time being. Uh, we're mm. not necessarily running out to engage in collective activities. Some other ones, like you know, movie theaters and so on, will not be able to open for some time. So I, I suspect it will be quite complicated in terms of uh, returning to some sort of sense of normalcy. Um, and again, we may also make decisions that there's certain kinds of normalcy that uh, we want to change, having had a chance to, to think a bit about... Uh, Right, how we're how we're related to each other through our economic activities. Uh, a parliamentary budget officer today discussing uh, how much this is all going to cost. Are Canadians concerned about that at this point, or is it still just getting over it? How many are do you think are concerned about coming out the other end and what this is going to cost us financially? Uh, I think most Canadians have that concern. I mean, I, I think they're aware that. If uh, the normal economic activities of the society are stopped uh, or mostly or largely stopped for an extended period, uh, there's going to be a significant bill to pay. Um, again, I think it's probably the time that we begin to have a discussion of that as we get out the other side. I mean, certainly at the current rates of interest at which our governments are, are borrowing money, um, it's maybe actually not that huge a concern uh, in the short term, uh, provided uh, one has rates of economic growth in the coming years. Borrowing money at 40 years at 1% is actually, uh, you know, a real opportunity. And so, uh, again, part of that, too, is to say, uh, you know, if those interest rates can continue, are there also other projects in terms of changing our economy to deal with the global climate emergency that we might also find some investment to make some of the important changes, uh, you know, the underlying investments that would be required to, to live differently, say, in an ecological sense. So, yeah, I think a lot of people are worried. Uh, they maybe are more worried than they need to be, given the current rate of public finances. And coming out the other side, though, it will be, I think, a, a complicated political moment where some people will say, well, we spend all this money. We actually have to do less in terms of the government. We have to do, you know, uh, do less in the way of public spending to pay that back. And there may be others who say, well, actually, this showed we have more capacity to borrow money uh, again, to invest in important things facing you know other challenges that we might face other than COVID, including this uh, looming global climate crisis. Peter Grave has been with us, political science professor, McMaster University. Peter, as always, thank you so much for the time. Take care. Thank you.
How has Ontario and Quebec handled the COVID-19 crisis? Research from University of Waterloo says the data shows if social distancing continues until mid-September, up to 90,000 lives could be saved. To talk more about all of this, Michelle Shedborski is with us, research assistant professor in uh, in at the university. Let me start again. A research assistant professor in University of Waterloo's Faculty of Mathematics. Michelle is with us now. Michelle, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, Scott. Thanks so much for having me. Hope that you're doing well during all of this. What are your thoughts when you see how Quebec is handling this and how Ontario is? Uh, many are pressuring uh, Premier Ford to give us dates and, and when this is all going to move beyond his stages or beyond the guidelines that he reached uh, or released today, uh, telling businesses how to reopen, uh, whereas Quebec has decided to put hard, firm dates. What are your thoughts on this? Um, well, you know, I have to... Uh, go and look at the predictions of the mathematical model that we uh, developed at the University of Waterloo. And, um, of course, you know, this model is, uh, has limitations and certain assumptions, but uh, what we've seen from the model is that, um, you know, our numbers do appear to be slowing down, but according to the model, it, uh, it seems like it's too soon to start easing social distancing restrictions. We've done a really good job uh, by enacting these social distancing policies to slow down the spread of the virus. Um, our Google data shows uh, that we have about 60% of Canadians that are adhering to the social distancing policies, and we can see how well that has uh, slowed things down so far. Can we slowly let ourselves out of our homes and keep social distancing, or do we have to stay the way we are? It's really hard to say that. I mean, just because we're, you know, these uh, based on these predictions, we can see that social distancing is very effective. It's hard to say how the protocol exactly should be implemented. So if we can uh, take specific precautions and make sure we're washing our hands and um, we have access to masks and things like this, when we do consider easing social distancing restrictions, uh, it doesn't necessarily mean that the protocol has to be the same, that we need to all stay home necessarily. But, um, you know, of course, the model does show that we do need to continue maintaining our social distance from each other. Are you, how concerned are you that uh, with reopening that that will become uh, harder and harder and some say even impossible to do? do you, can we manage both sides of this? Because obviously there's two different approaches here. You know, it's something that I personally uh, am apprehensive to comment on. Uh, mm-hmm. But um, I would say that everybody has to do their part and that um, it's something that we all need to do as individuals at the individual level and make sure that we're each... Uh, maintaining our distance and we're following the uh, policies that are put in place and um, and doing our due diligence to help stop the spread. Um, your research from the University of Waterloo says that data shows that if social distancing continues to mid-September, about 90,000 lives could be saved. Expand on that. Yes. So, um, of course, these, you know, I want to stress that these are predictions of the mathematical model and that this number is in comparison to if we had have done nothing, so no social distancing right. policy from the beginning. Um, so this four to six month timeline, um, again, we, we need to look at the trends of the model more qualitatively than, uh, than looking at these specific numbers because these are models that do have limitations. Um, 
but the point is that uh, this four to six month prediction was based on the available number of resources that we have currently and um, our ability to keep the peak number of infections below our current threshold of medical resources. So, you know, uh, this four to six month timeline, what it, what it means is that it, it gives us more time to acquire more resources. And as, as these things become available, as more resources become available, this timeline could very well change. Uh, and, and decrease. What can we learn? What can you learn from countries who are ahead of us on this, who have already been through the stages that we've been through? What, what can we learn from them? Uh, that's a, a good question. So um, in our our model itself, we, we focused on uh, the pro- projections for Canada and for Ontario and Quebec uh, in particular. Um, but I will uh, highlight that uh, we, you know, we did do a, uh, a fit to China's data as well, and our model was able to uh, make really reliable predictions about uh, their peak infections and, and uh, their other data. So, um, uh, but I do have to mention that we did focus on Canada in making these, uh, you know, four to six month predictions, and particularly Ontario and Quebec, because that's where the, uh, the highest number of infections in Canada have been so far. And so, um, uh, the model can be extended to other countries, but it's something that we're currently working on. Um, this and this is probably unrelated, and a question you can't answer. But do you think Quebec will have to roll back its opening dates? I really, yeah. It's some, you know, of course, it's something I can't answer. Um, I, I would mm-hmm. like to stress that, of course, the model is saying that it is too soon to start easing these social distancing uh, restrictions. So. Um, where things will go, that's uh, not not for me to decide, uh, but all I can do is comment on what the results were from the mathematical model. Uh, which do we really need? Will we ever have enough to make this decision, other than when a vaccine is available? Yeah, so that's the main uh, uh benefit to the social distancing right now is that, first of all, it slows the spread of the disease, but also it really does buy us time so that we can uh, look at um, developing potential treatments to reduce the severity of the disease uh, or to potentially uh, develop a vaccine and to acquire more resources and ventilators for when we do start to uh, use the social distancing restrictions if we happen to have a second peak. So moving forward, and, and obviously, you know, your, your specialty is mathematics here, but what is your concern as a citizen as we move forward with this? Um, I mean, I think we all have concerns. Uh, you know, people are concerned about uh, their jobs and uh, their mental health and, and everything, right? And, and that's why I think that the results of this study were so important because it allows us to see that we are really doing such a good job and um, the situation has been tragic and but we can see that the situation could have been so much worse if we hadn't have enacted these policies as quickly as we did here in Canada and particularly so, in Ontario and Quebec. As you continue to study this, what is the next piece of information you're looking for What as you follow yeah, so, and study the backside of this curve? Yeah, so... 
Um, one thing that we're uh, really interested to do is to include additional details into the model. So um, you can imagine if um, we have a, an age and sex stratified model with more details uh, that the predictions might change uh, quite a bit. So um, we're really happy to include additional details into the model, like the uh, age and sex uh, specifics of the population, uh, perhaps um, looking at how uh, treatment affects uh, can mitigate the situation um, and how uh, heat, humidity, and, and temperature and things like this can change the parameter values in the model. And we're really... Um, Michelle, she had... go ahead, finish up. Yeah, I just wanted to say we're really interested to include these things and um, to, to work with public health officials uh, to build a more comprehensive model with uh, more relevant uh, mathematical predictions. There are so many tentacles to this. It is unbelievable. Michelle Shedborsky has been with us, a research assistant professor in University of Waterloo's Faculty of Mathematics, uh, talking about the modeling that goes on. Michelle, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Take care. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Odd reports yesterday coming out that um, the emergency departments in hospitals are relatively calm. Uh, You know, in in the past, we've heard of hallway medicine and how crowded these all are. Well, it appears that people now, uh, as hospitals have moved into COVID-19 mode, are are very reluctant to go into hospitals at this point. Um, We're hearing stories uh, anecdotally of paramedics that are saying, uh, you know, we should take you in. No, no, don't want to go because they're scared that they could catch something. How do you handle this aspect of the discussion? Let's bring in Peter Beeling, Vice President of St. Joseph's Hospital Mental Health and Addictions Program and is with us now. Peter, thank you for the time. We hope you're doing well. Yeah, thanks, Scott. Great. Uh, we, we often hear uh, about overcrowding situations in hospitals. Are you surprised that we're, we're seeing space there right now and that some are scared to come in? Yeah, without without seeming to to minimize the the tragedy that's that's been COVID for Ontarians, you know, there's we've we've had our share. Um, however, the 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 way that the the curve or the wave came, um, it it did not swamp our 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 hospital system, and it looks like it probably uh, will not. And uh, maybe the part that we didn't fully expect. Um, is that there would be less visits to to emergency rooms, and uh, it's not just Hamilton; it's it's happening in other parts of the world as well. And um, it's it's a, a a bit difficult to explain, but perhaps not. As you said, if if people are afraid to come to hospital, that would be part of the explanation. So, what is the explanation? You know, well, that, so that would be one, and that would be unfortunate if if people were really in medical need or in a in a mental health crisis and and put off coming to hospital. We don't want people to put off coming to hospital because we have screening and testing and protective equipment, and you know, it's it's definitely safe to come to hospital. But there might be some fear, as as uh, as you pointed out. Uh, the other possibility, uh, and it'll take it'll take the aftermath of this and some careful research to figure this out, is that. Um, while it's frustrating for us to be social distancing and physically isolated in our homes, um, perhaps it keeps us from having a certain amount of misadventure. So hmm, um, keeps us safer. Accidents, yeah, traffic accidents and uh, no one planning a, a, a big hike on a Saturday uh, figures that they're going to end up in an ED with a broken leg, but some people hmm. do. Um, hmm. And so right now we are um, not really in a position to uh, to make some of those choices. 
concerned are you that some are neglecting treatment that they made, whether it's someone experiencing the you know the first stages of a heart attack or what have you? Yeah, no, it is it is it is concerning. Um, we have not seen uh, so-called sicker patients uh, coming to 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 our ED than normal. So it's unclear that people really are putting off something very life-threatening. But uh, you know, we'd want people to 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 to, to think about it at all times, whether they need emergency help, but to know that if, if that's the choice they make, they should, they should definitely come. And, and um, you know, we have, we, we have the capacity and we have the capacity to safely care for people. How much of this has to do with the fact that it's all hands on deck with COVID-19? Many uh, or uh, elective surgeries and other surgeries have been canceled. Is this due to the normal service of the hospital is just reduced anyway because of COVID-19? Is that contributing to this? Well, that, that's for sure. We made it. We made a strategic decision because we were expecting to be swamped to to cancel as many possible procedures. That's some of it, but the numbers that uh, I have to hand are from essentially people arriving at our emergency department. And on any given day, that, that's down somewhere. So it's not zero, of course, but it's down by between 30 and 40 percent, which is not something we would have, we would have guessed um, would have happened, I think, in advance of all this. Any word as to when hospitals will start to get back to elective surgeries, and, and which I'm sure must be a backup of, of things that have been curtailed due to uh, COVID-19? Yeah, I think every hospital is is doing the same thing, which is coming up with a with a paper based plan at this point for how we would restart. Not not dissimilar from the the way that the Ontario kind of business and economy will will wish to restart in stages. Um, but we'll need a signal uh, to 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 ramp back up that comes from from the province on the whole, because there still is that concern about the long term care homes um, and 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 so what we think of as congregate living where people are together and there could still be outbreaks. So, um, so I think it was, it was awfully complicated to sort of shut everything down uh, when, when we needed to do that uh, many weeks ago. But it'll be even more complicated in some ways to figure yeah. out how do you start up and, and, and what comes first and what comes next. An obvious one would be any life-saving type of surgery. Like we, we have to uh, get, uh, for instance, cancer surgery, I think, back on track as, as soon as we possibly can. Uh, getting back to those that aren't coming into emergency, and you bring up a very valid point. I mean, all you have to do is go out to a highway and realize that there's nobody on the road to realize that, yes, if we're all staying in, we're probably being a little safer, uh, although maybe household accidents are up a bit. I'm not sure. Um, but are you uh, getting back to people not wanting or, or cautious going to the hospital? And we're even hearing this from, from paramedics as well. Um, what are your chances of catching something in a hospital? Do you want to, can you, can you sort of alleviate some of the people's fears about not only this disease, but others in a hospital? Yeah. So, so it, it, it's, it's, it's a good, good, good point in the sense that, you know, there have always been, uh, always been some small chance that in a hospital you're exposed to, uh, you're exposed to other unwell people. So, you know, um, but that's why we have, uh, well looked after infectious disease processes inside our hospitals. So I don't know that I can I can give you a, a number, but um, again, because of the screening and the testing and all the equipment that we have, um, I uh, personally will tell you that when I feel most vulnerable is when I'm out getting my groceries. And once I get through the screening <laughs> here in the hospital, I feel like I, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty much as safe as I can be. 
That makes complete sense. Uh, let's talk about uh, mental health for a while. We're certainly talking about the horrific uh, situation in long-term care facilities and such and, and how sick one can get if they, if they do contract uh, COVID-19. What about mental health? Are, are we forgetting this? Do we realize how much of an impact this is having on our mental health? Yeah, I think I think uh, you know it's a complicated. It's almost a whole separate thing uh, to to talk about. Lots of us are feeling incredibly frustrated and 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 worn out from from the isolation and and wondering when it will end. But but thankfully, I think when it does begin to wind down, most of us will recover uh, relatively quickly because uh, you know human beings have really strong uh, coping abilities and. Um, I don't want to make it out that all of us are going to, to struggle in the aftermath, but we do know for sure that some um, frontline providers, in particular um, frontline service folks, will have been exposed to some really difficult uh, situations, some of which involve things like moral injury, where they just have to make really, really difficult decisions, where none, none of the decisions is, is, is great. Uh, and, and they may struggle with um, post-traumatic stress disorder, and we've already begun to organize ourselves as a province to, uh, to, to respond to that need um, for frontline service workers. And then there's the third piece of this, and I, it's, it's going to be more, more complicated, um, is uh, you know, what, what's happening with folks who struggle with a mental illness uh, but you know, aren't coming in for care, and so their, condi- their underlying condition is, is getting, mm-hmm. getting worse. Um, we are trying in our program to do as much virtual and, and outreach care as we possibly can to to continue to treat those people. Um, and I'm happy to say that you know we're we've been able to keep up about 75% of our appointments switching from real life to virtual. But that said, uh, obviously 25% uh, we're not able to do. So yeah, I do I do worry that 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 those people are are doing okay, and we're trying to reach them. Peter Beeling is with us, Vice President of St. Joseph's Hospital Mental Health and Addictions, uh, Addiction Programs. Peter, thank you so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you. Lots of chatter in regard to festivals uh, this upcoming summer, concerts and such that are going on. And obviously this is uh, an industry that is going to be feeling the pinch uh, as we slowly start to open up and maybe not soon enough for festivals. Uh, that being said, where does this leave Hamilton Supercrawl, which of course is in September? Let's bring in Tim Potasik, co-owner of Sonic Onion, organized Supercrawl. He is with us now. Tim, thanks for the time. Home well. All is well. Thank you. So where is Supercrawl at this point, Tim? What are your thoughts? Well, it's really hard to make decisions, so we haven't made any firm ones yet, um, obviously, but we're talking to the uh, provincial government and the federal government ministers weekly, really, um, and our industry as well, and trying to make the most informed, best decisions we can. At the moment, what we're doing is waiting. Um, We're waiting to the 1st of June, basically. We have another board meeting with the board of directors that week, and um, we're waiting to see what transpires. I mean, with the city, or sorry, with the province, putting together that phased-in, you know, plan with no timeline, but the, the, the phases have timelines. We can use those as a guide to let us know what is going to happen, like, at certain particular times. Um, so, at the moment, Supercrawl's happening. Let's just say that. Um, in September, everything is booked. I mean, obviously, we have a lot of things on pause, 
putting calls out to vendors, volunteers, food trucks, all those types of things uh, we're not doing yet until we know what we're, what we're doing. We don't want to have to make work for people, right? Obviously, partners, we don't want them to have to go through the trouble of filling out application forms, sending deposits if we know we're not going to run a festival or we're unsure. So we want to be positive. We think the beginning of June we'll be able to have a better understanding of what is uh, opening up and what's happening and then what the province is going to allow. That's all we can really do. It's not really up to us. <laughs> we've certainly seen, uh, yeah, is not the truth. Uh, we've certainly, uh, you know, the, the province has released guidelines uh, for for businesses and such that, that uh, protocol for them to follow as they slowly start to open up. With a festival such as this, is it possible to have social distancing protocol or is it either we can or we can't? Well, we don't know uh, is a simple question or simple answer at this point. But, I mean, what we're speculating from what we've heard is that I, I know that from, of course, all they're saying is larger events and sporting events and those types of big um, masses of people are the last things to get back to normal. Um, but what we have heard on the side of, like, outdoor events is that it's more likely that outdoor events will be allowed because you have the ability to social distance yourself as opposed to sitting in an arena where you, you know, you have to sit beside the person you're sitting beside because that's your seat number and there's no ability to social distance really uh, because it's not outdoors. So, you know, fingers crossed that's going to weigh well in our, you know, to our benefit and we're going to be able to do things. But, you know, it's really, it's really hard to say. I'm the most optimistic person. So I'm being very optimistic. The, the one option we do have is we could potentially move a month later if that helps us mm-hmm. run the festival, um, mm. talk with the city. And, you know, there's definitely the ability for us to be in, uh, you know, the middle of October. We've been there before. We started the first year was the second week of October. So um, that's not out of the question. And we would do that. I think moving to November might be a little bit too risky, uh, but still a vi- it's still an option. Um, ultimately what we want to do is we want to run the festival. We want to be able to bring back some life, uh, to Hamiltonian residents and other community people and other neighboring cities. And if we're able to, of course we're going to, um, tough one though. Like it's, you know, our business is very much, uh, all around, not just super crawl, but everything we do is really hinged on live. All of our artists, um, all of the other events that we run, our clubs that we run. So it's been, it's really challenging time for, you know, for our business for sure. So wait and see at this point, but you're hoping by June 1st, you might have a more solid answer for this. Yeah. And I mean, ultimately too, the reason we're waiting to June 1st is that we want to make one decision, hopefully based on the best information that we have. We don't want to have to make two, like I could have made a decision already to say, okay, we're going to move to October, but I don't have enough information to really make that decision. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Yeah, like right now yeah, and, yeah. and then maybe in the middle of the summer have to be like, Oh, sorry about that. We're canceled. Um, so we want to be able to make one decision. Um, but then there's also alternatives. We're coming up with a whole bunch of different ideas, but what we could do um, outside of running a big festival and event. So maybe there's opportunities for us to do smaller shows and still celebrate right artists and celebrate vendors and food trucks and food culture and fashion culture and theater culture in a smaller setting if we're able to. So if the province opens up, you know, smaller venues and allows 
under 1,000 capacity events to happen, then maybe we'll transition into something along those mm. lines and still be able to celebrate music. Tim Potasik has been with us, co-owner of Sonic Onion, uh, organizer of Super Crawl, still holding out hope that uh, they may be able to do the festival at its originally scheduled weekend. Uh, they'll know more by June 1st, and also the alternate date of even bumping it back. Uh, Tim, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Good luck with all of this. Appreciate it. Thank you very much. Talk soon. You take care. Be well. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Now, you know, we've certainly seen uh, the president of the United States and and how he has reacted to uh, COVID-19. I I don't think there's really any surprises there. And uh, we can sit and and talk about his behavior till uh, the cows come home. Uh, but uh, what makes his next statements um, confusing and and, uh, and concerning is because uh, obviously there is a situation uh, across the world that we have to deal with, and um, here's a man who is, uh, I guess, prides himself on divisiveness, and it's pretty hard uh, to be anything other than uniting when you're in a crisis. Uh, I'm not sure that uh, the divisive uh, mantra of the president uh, works here, Uh, Many have uh, directed uh, attention to China, and rightly so, uh, and the World Health Organization, and rightly so, as to how this has all been handled. We certainly uh, will be able to hold a postmortem after all of this and decide, you know, where where we did well and where we didn't do well at all. Um, and obviously, uh, China does hold a lot of responsibility here and is certainly very much interwoven with uh, the world economy that this has affected us all. Those are all valid questions that we should be asking once we are all in in a position of safety. However, the U.S. president is targeting China and directing it and, and relating it to his re-election campaign. Uh, we remember all the chatter about Russia and what was going on in the, in the first election campaign. Now it seems the U.S. president says China wants him to lose the re-election campaign and will do anything possible to have that happen. Let's bring in Ryan Hurl, Assistant Professor, Department of Political Science, University of Toronto. He is with us now. Ryan, as always, thank you so much for the time. Hope you're doing Hi. Hi, Scott. Happy to be here. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Thank you, Ryan. Uh, Ryan, your thoughts on uh, what the president is saying and and how detrimental this sort of message can be, uh, now saying that uh, China will do anything to stop his re-election. Why would China want to do that? What are your thoughts on what he's saying? Well, if we start from uh, China's perspective, um, I, I really do think that the the disadvantages for intervening in any way in American elections outweigh any possible advantages that they might have. And another way to look at this is that at this point, it's not clear to me that the parties are going to differ all that much in terms of their general relationships with China. Uh, we used to have the saying that foreign policy or, or partisanship stops at the water's edge. That was true maybe for a little bit at some point, I don't know, maybe in like the night, late 1970s. But perhaps in regards to China, some of this, not all, but some of this is going to be, uh, a, you're going to see a bipartisan convergence. So you see already that uh, Joe Biden is criticizing Trump for being uh, it not insufficiently confrontational with China on regards to at least some issues. I don't think that, um, I don't think that either the Democratic Party or the Republican Party anyone within either parties really is going to say, well, you know what, what this whole 
what this whole event with with uh, the COVID nineteen crisis illustrates is that well, we need to, we need to double down on sort of liberalizing and extending our trade relationships with China. That's not going to be the kind of divisions uh, that uh, that's not going to be the issue that either party runs on. But this only just illustrates uh, the strangeness of Trump's statement, uh, and it's sort of understandable, I suppose, why he might want to politicize it. But, uh, you know, the fact of the matter is that attempts to intervene in elections, they get found out. Uh, that leads to very serious consequences. And I think it's also the case that China, it's not clear why China would be in a better position with uh, Biden as president. I think um, now to say some things in Trump's favor, I do think that some of these issues in regards to COVID-19 have illustrated some concerns, mostly trade related concerns. Uh, that Trump has harped on for a very long time, sort of the fragility of our trade relations, the dangers of outsourcing uh, critical industries to China. Uh, that can all be true, but it doesn't mean that China is actively engaged in trying to intervene in uh, American electoral politics. I don't want to be naive, and China engages in espionage. China engages engages in great power politics, of course, but. To think that they would try to intervene at the micro level to to you know uh, skew the election outcomes, I, I think this is a, perhaps perhaps President Trump is getting a little stir crazy after confi- after being confinement during the, uh, <laughs> the crisis for so long. And you know, you bring up a valid point that a lot of these criticisms uh, towards China are valid, but now he is using this politically. Are you concerned this will distract from us really finding out what happened because? He creates this almost kind of racist view of China. So in a sense, that gets us off, gets them off the hook because we really don't look into what we should be looking into. We're too busy dealing with the personality than the facts. Right. It does seem to me that it, it doesn't make things any easier. It, the entire world has an interest in getting China to play ball in terms of trying to figure out exactly where this virus came from how it spread, and working together to stop it, hopefully prevent it in the future. The world needs, needs to have cooperation on this. And by trying, to, by trying to make China's role in American politics part of the electoral campaign, it does seem to me that this is going to, only, going to make things, only going to make things more difficult. What about China's reaction to all of this? Uh, I think it was plausible and... Uh, you know, even if we would say that if we're looking back at the timeline, there are perhaps many different stages, many different steps when we would have wished the Chinese government to be more open, to be more more forthcoming about the danger of the virus, the scope of the virus. Um, you know, to to make a claim that a foreign government really wants to um, wants to skew an electoral outcome, you need to have extraordinary evidence. You know, I would even say that. You know, looking back, it, it's almost as if Trump hasn't learned how dangerous these accusations can be. I mean, the United States was divided over the question of Russian interference. And, of course, there is at some level, um, you know, there's foreign espionage going on all the time in the United States. But using using foreign interference as an aspect of electoral politics, I don't think that really benefits. I don't think it really, really benefits either party. I mean, the other way to think about this is that just in terms of evaluating Trump's arguments, it's not exactly clear what a foreign government can do to shift an election. I mean, if you want to read about 
um, I read about this. Uh, there's a book, unfortunately, I forget the name of the journalist. The book is called The Apprentice, uh, fittingly enough. But in his discussion of how Russians were actually trying to intervene in the American elections, you can see how sort of silly is the wrong word, but how utterly ineffective this aspect of espionage can be. Things like sending young people to explore the United States, posting Facebook ads and things of that nature. It is no easy thing for a foreign government to influence an election in in that sense. Now, There are broader concerns with more modern forms of voting technology, hacking and so forth. There are, of course, relatively easy solutions to that sort of thing. But um, I think it would be helpful if the American public always kept in mind that it's not easy for, you know, a billionaire like Michael Bloomberg to sway elections. It's not easy for foreign governments to sway elections as much as they might like to. You you mentioned earlier um, uh, the divisive tactics of Donald Trump. This has certainly uh, worked well for him during the campaign and and pretty much through his presidency. Uh, and even within his own party, he he, he seems to be uh, divisive. Can you lead through a crisis like this being divisive? Can you lead through any crisis being divisive? That's an interesting question. Um, I do think that this particular crisis. You know, it's not a political crisis that Trump uh, was set to deal with for a whole host of reasons. You can look at it first by thinking that the issues that Trump was able to succeed on, and he was able to succeed in many ways by criticizing expert consensus, criticizing expert consensus on things like immigration policy or trade policy and to some degree foreign policy, such as foreign policy in the Middle East, all very successful in terms of electoral campaigning and mobilizing the public. The elite, the consensus, the elite consensus was incorrect. Well, the fact that the elite consensus is incorrect on some issues, even some very important issues, doesn't mean that there are not some very specific issues where really you're dealing with a kind of technical problem, a problem that doesn't care about partisanship, a problem that doesn't care about political ideology, and that's an area where it is necessary to step back and, in many ways, let the experts take over. Not completely, not forever. It's not as if there aren't different kinds of trade-offs. But it seems that really Trump has been digging himself a hole on this issue because at, at least in the earliest stages of the crisis, it would have made much a greater sense for Trump to get off, stop trying to be the central figure and to allow even more space for relevant uh, government officials, say in the Center for Disease Control, uh, to avoid politicizing the question. If he had been if he had done that more successfully at that stage, now that we're a bit further into the crisis and it's necessary to start raising questions about trade-offs in terms of locking down or opening up the economy, because Trump has been trying to make himself so uh, central to the entire process, it's more difficult to move into this next stage where you really need to. It's not just about experts anymore. It's about balancing out different types of expertise. It's about political judgment. And it's going to be very difficult for Trump to make that transition. And I, I don't think he's going to be, I don't think trying to um, politicize this issue or to try to make it seem as if China is somehow favoring one party over another. I think that is, will be you know, too transparently self-interested for the American public to accept. Hmm, interesting. So uh, you don't think they're going to react? It won't be the same old, same old, where it depends which team you're on, who you're going to back here. Uh, sooner or later, this is losing steam. Is that accurate? Um, are, if you're talking about the attempt to um, 
blame the Chinese government in the sense of arguing that they are in some sense uh, trying to undermine to the Trump administration. Uh, yeah, I don't think that's I don't think that's going to fly absent more absent more serious absent, absent more serious evidence. Ryan Hurl has been with us, assistant professor at Political Science University of Toronto. Ryan, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Be well. Okay. Thanks a lot. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening.